and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, an ongoing conversation about public policy, governance, and global issues. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we have with us former Clinton White House official Elaine Kmark, who currently serves as a lecturer in public policy here at Harvard Kennedy School. Elaine, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So, give me a little bit of background about yourself. Obviously, you were active in democratic politics before you came to the Kennedy School. How did you first get involved with that? Um, I went to graduate school at Berkeley in the uh, late 1970s. And when I left graduate school, um, instead of getting an academic job, my first job was actually working at the Democratic National Committee, where I stayed for some years and then proceeded to work in presidential campaigns, uh, a whole series of presidential campaigns, um, and then ending up in a Washington think tank. And so by the time I finished my dissertation along the way and got to my first academic job, uh, I was uh, well into my 40s and uh, came here to Harvard. It was sort of starting at the top. I had sort of the luck of starting at the top. But I had really started with a career in politics and government, served in the Clinton White House, and then came here in 1997. So I, a lot of people do this the other way around. They, you know, finish their PhD when they're supposed to. They go into academia and then they go into government. I kind of did it all backwards. So do you think that your experience in, in the White House and elsewhere in campaigns informed your current role in your research and academic pursuits? Yeah, I like to think that my experience get, gives my writings, you know, a little bit more uh, real world impact and real world connection. Um, I didn't write my first book until I came here to the Kennedy School, other than writing a, a textbook. I didn't write my first book till I came here. And um, most of my work, while dipping into political science, I am a political scientist, uh, most of my work also draws from my experience and understanding in the world of politics. You've been writing recently about the idea of how to make change in office. What makes a policy successful? I mean, how, how does an administration pursue policy that works? One of the things that's, that got me interested in the book is how difficult it is to answer that very question. Um, and I start the book with a story about Harry Truman who in 1946 was about as unpopular a president as you can imagine. I mean, really unpopular with his peers, unpopular with the public, just all the way around. And yet in 1947, he passed the Marshall Plan, which was this enormous infusion of tax dollars into Europe, into war-torn Europe. And it intrigued me that if you were to sort of take the names away and just lay out the circumstances, most people would say, well, he can't manage to do anything. And that actually, that theme animates the book because what I look at is not just getting things on the agenda, public agenda, which a lot of political scientists have done a very good job of, of doing. But then once they're on the agenda, what makes for success and what makes for failure? And interestingly enough, that is not very, uh, that is not a very simple proposition. 
So it, are there any examples other than Truman that a uh, policy has been pursued that uh, you know, you wouldn't have believed in that actually came to fruition through many, yeah, many policies. I mean, the and there was no common thread between them. Or? There are there are some common lessons to be learned. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I think if there's one lesson to be learned that comes through in the book is that there is no such thing as policy without politics. And there is no such thing as politics without policy. And that success and failure is often embedded in the policy itself. Mm -hmm. And the tendency in the modern world is just as we've specialized, you know, just as doctors specialize in things, um, we specialize, some people specialize in policy and some people specialize in politics. Well, the leaders of today's world actually need to sit at the intersection of both, and they need to be able to understand both. It is interesting, and I spend a lot of time in the book, it is interesting how presidents screw up just as often as other people do in trying to get that understanding of the two spheres right. Right now, we're embroiled in another presidential election, and the Obama administration has spent the four, last four years uh, pursuing their version of change. Do you think they've been successful, especially in, in comparison to other administrations of the past 50, 60 years? The answer is yes and no. Um, certainly they, and I, I write about this in the book, certainly the Obama administration, like the Johnson administration in 1964, understood that they needed to take advantage of a unique constellation of events, a big Democratic win in 2008, uh, follow, uh, which was preceded by a big win in 2006. And they used that to finally pass catastrophic health insurance, or, or I'm sorry, just to pass health insurance. And that was clearly a big win for them. The downside of that, however, is that it mobilized a significant portion of the country against it, and it was one of the animating um, arguments in them losing the House of Representatives in 2010. And it's that politics, policy. It's that politi It's the complication of politics and policy. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, a Monday morning quarterback, you look back and you say, gee, maybe a more modest attempt at health care reform would have given them the opportunity to hold the House and fight another day for either more health care reform or for some of the other issues like action on climate change, which they had to abandon because they got such a shellacking um, in 2010. So this is a, this is a pretty complicated calculation. Um, what to go for, what the political cost is of the things that you do win, and weighing whether you just simply take the moment or whether sometimes in taking the moment you then lose the opportunity for another, you know, two, perhaps six years. So if you were to go back to, say, January of 2008 and approach a Democratic voter, uh, with the various accomplishments of the Obama administration over the last four years. Would you think that that voter would be happy with those successes? Or do you think, you know, 
maybe they vote for Hillary instead. I think that they would be very happy with those successes on the foreign policy front. Okay, finally killing Osama bin Laden is a big deal. And that will, I think, help the administration enormously. One of the things through much of my lifetime that's been true is that Democrats were perceived as, as weak and sort of incompetent on defense and military affairs. And the Obama administration has done a great job of, of wiping that perception out. So you'd, you'd have to give them a, a really very, very good marks. And I think, frankly, the public will give them very good marks. There's the big issue, however, of coping with the recession and managing to dull the pain of the recession, probably the public would give them less well marks, less good marks. I think that there were high hopes that Obama could do something about the recession. He hasn't done much, he hasn't been able to do much about it. There's a lot of disappointment in him and a lot of anger because so many people are still unemployed and still have their mortgages underwater. Presidents often uh, enact sweeping changes with an eye towards their legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that makes them reach too far in, and give up smaller gains in the meantime? That is one of the interesting questions, right? The question is, do you go big or do you move incrementally? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, your legacy is a sum of the parts, right? It doesn't rest on one thing. So there's a strategic question here, which is what will the traffic bear? Okay, what what political strengths do you bring to the table? Um, what is the scope of conflict? I talk about that a lot in my book because it's key to good strategic thinking, which is understanding where do you win, where do you lose? And the insight that comes from a political scientist who's now been dead for 20 years, but the reason I love him is that he says a lot about politics. Who's this? Uh, E.E. Schatzschneider. Uh, Schatzschneider's insight is as relevant today as it was when he wrote 1960, so it's half a century ago, which is that whenever you expand the scope of conflict and you bring in more players, you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. So when Obama takes health care, and rather than doing what some of his aides wanted him to do, which is do a smaller piece of it, like children's health care or some fixes to Medicaid or something like that, when you go big, you bring in a lot more actors, a lot more interests, a lot more people, and you inject into the whole issue a degree of uncertainty about the outcome, both whether or not it'll be successful, which healthcare almost was not, and what the long-term political fallout is going to be. Mm -hmm. I want to switch gears a little bit here. Right now, there is a lot of talk about fraud, waste, and abuse in the federal government. In your time with the Clinton administration, you managed the uh, National Performance Review. So do you see that as continuing to be a problem? And if so, what's the best way to combat that? Um, it's There is fraud, waste, and abuse in any entity that's as big as the U.S. federal government. However, that discussion is being played out in the context of these deficits, and that's ridiculous. 
Okay, patently, absolutely, totally ridiculous. And why is uh, that? Because the amount of fraud or waste or abuse would, even if you could root out every single bit of it, would in fact not even get you remotely close to closing the deficit. All right. Now, in the Clinton administration, we came in with a smaller deficit. We had the advantage of the productivity increases from computerization, the information re revolution. Um, my first year in the White House, we didn't have the internet. Mm -hmm. Okay, hard to believe, but I'm looking at somebody who can't imagine life without the internet, right? Well, <laughs> we didn't have the internet. Um, we got the internet in 1996 in the White House. And wow. so, yeah, so we were able to, thanks to Al Gore, who was, you know, who really knew about the internet, um, we were able to really drive information technology through the government in a, in a huge modernization effort. Mm -hmm. And that in combination with some good luck on the economy, et cetera, um, we actually cut the federal government by 17%. We did a huge overhaul. And in fact, by the end of the Clinton years, we had a balanced budget to the amazement of everyone. The Bush years did enormous damage to that because basically- To the information technology no, spread? Oh, no, they, they did a good job on information technology. They did enormous damage to the balanced budget because they funded the wars off budget. Okay, they funded the wars and a lot of the new spending that was needed for security off budget. Mm -hmm. They just didn't make any attempts to pay for it. Now, in the in the early years, that was understandable, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we were panicked. Of course, that's what you do is you, you go ahead and you deficit spend, especially when it's on security. Mm -hmm. But as the decade wore on, the Bush administration just blew holes in this budget. Then, by the end of the Bush administration, we had a recession. And we had the bursting of, a, of, so we had a little perfect storm there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you had to deficit spend to keep the keep the country from falling flat out into a recession. Mm -hmm. So we now have sort of unprecedented deficits. Mm -hmm. To think that these deficits can be closed by management reforms is sheer idiocy. They that's can't, that's they a can, strong opinion. It, it is a, believe me, I've been in the belly of the beast, it, that it cannot happen. To close these deficits, you have to make some very hard decisions about what the government spends money on mm -hmm. and what where the government brings in revenue from. Mm -hmm. And um, to, management is always good. It should happen. I think there should have probably been another performance review because it can it contributes to a mindset that the government is in fact being very careful of, of taxpayer dollars um, but it cannot close this deficit well we'll end on a strong note thank you so much for joining us today elaine really appreciate having you on thank you matt for having me here You've been listening to PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. More information can be found at hkspolicycast.org.